out more. We need to stop sometimes and look at the sky. We need to spend more time with the ones we love and forget the ones we don't. So many things can make you forget. Make you forget what's important in life. They will use fear on us. And if you believe them and let them in, it will bring you down. Will make you get in line and shut up. Well, we don't want to get in line. We want to show them all the sky and let them figure it out for themselves. We are talking to you. Yes, you. Sat in your car. Sat at home, walking along the street. That thing you want. That thing that feels a hundred miles away. It's yours. It always has been. All you have to do is go and get it with starry eyes and butterflies. is a weaving of true stories that connect us in the human experience. Each episode gains at giving our audience new insight into themselves and others around them. Using philosophy, history, art, the sciences, and music, we guide our listener to access their playfulness, emotional intelligence, connectivity, and the desire to discover. We are the ripples in this big puddle, and we are connected by our stories. When your soul makes a noise, what does it sound like? Here's mine. I'm Carla Taylor, and you're listening to episode 10, Sound Imprint. It's pretty easy to recognize genuine creative expression. It has its own unique resonance. It feels uncontained, unsuppressible. It seems to follow its own current. Oh, and it leaves behind an echo. There's a mysterious and inherent quality hidden in great art, and this invisible substance is what makes these words affect us as deeply as they do. Sound relies on transmitter and receiver to validify existence, and music is the most powerful transmitter of all. Music tells us things, social things, psychological things, physical things, about how we feel and perceive our bodies in a way that no other art form can quite nail. It's sometimes in the words, but just as often the content comes from a combination of sounds, rhythms, and vocal textures that communicate in ways that bypass the reasoning centers of the brain and go straight to our emotions. Music, in whatever form, tells us how others view the world. People we've never met, sometimes people who are no longer alive. Music embodies the way those people thought and felt, what their experiences were, what their consciousness transcribed. We enter into new worlds, their worlds. The inexpressible depth of music, Schopenhauer wrote, so easy to understand and yet so inexplicable, is due to the fact that it reproduces all the emotions in our innermost being, but entirely without reality and remote from its pain. Music expresses only the quintessence of life and of its events, never these themselves. Everyone has had a song transport them to a vivid memory of an early romance or some other formative experience. Songs are like smells that way, 
They bring up worlds, very specific places and moments. Other sounds do this too. Intense rain, a car horn, a distant train. What I love most about music is that we encounter it at specific times and places. It happens, we sense it, and then it's gone. It seemingly disappears but leaves behind a feeling. A feeling that can be recalled by just hearing the song over again. Our sonic memory is there to capture ringtones, dog growls, and ambulance sirens, as well as also snippets of songs. When we remember a melody it plays in our mind, it becomes newly alive. There's not a process of recalling, imagining, assembling, recategorizing, recreating, as when one attempts to reconstruct or remember an event or a scene from the past. Sociologist H. Stith Bennett claims that over time we've developed what he calls recorded consciousness, which means we internalize how the world sounds based on how recordings sound. The part of our brain that deals with hearing acts as a filter, and because of our exposure to recorded sound, we simply don't hear things that don't fit that sonic template. So to make your own sound, well that just takes courage. We all know how weird it is to hear your own recorded voice. The discomforting aspect of this phenomena is often attributed to the fact that we hear ourselves, our voices, through the vibrations in our skulls, as well as through our ears, and recordings can't capture those skull vibrations. Much of what we hear is partly defined and limited by the mechanics of our ears. We know that we can't hear all the high-pitched sounds that bats emit or the full range of sounds that a dog can hear, but there are things we hear that have nothing to do with the physics of the eardrum and the auditory canal. Sounds can help you find yourself too, find your purpose, spirituality, and eventually lead you back to a newer, broader version of yourself. Here's Kate Priestley of KP and the Boom Boom with her story. I was washing my hands. I just walked out of the bathroom and I felt like somebody over my shoulder staring at me. And he was like, can you sing? And I was like, um, he's like, just, I mean, you look like a singer. And so I said, well, I mean, I, I like to sing. So he said, okay, I'm a music teacher. Come by my shop at 4 p.m. and you're going to sing to Tabla. I was like, well, can you tell me what to sing so I can like learn, learn the lyrics and stuff? And he was like, no, like, just whatever comes out, that's what you're going to sing. I was a little uh, nervous, kind of confused as well, <laughs> because it was just a really strange meeting, and I didn't know who this guy was. But I went at 4 p.m., and he, he had a music shop where he teach students, some Indian, some international. He just started playing tabla, and at first I felt really awkward. He asked me to start singing. And then I think it was like 30, 40 minutes later, we, you know, I looked at the clock and realized that I'd just been singing nonstop for that whole time, like something I'd been channeling something and uh, it just came out really naturally. I thought it was a great idea to go to India um, just because of the culture and, you know, the music and the colors. And when I arrived there, you know, I was traveling by myself and I remember having the biggest shock of my life. 
I arrived in the airport terminal. I remember walking out towards the the taxis and the the tuk-tuks, and there was a shuddering cow in the airport terminal, and somebody laying on the ground that looked like you know they were they were half dead. I, I had no idea. Everybody's walking over them. I just was not prepared, and I remember walking out and just being accosted by like maybe over 50, 60 men just wanting to grab my bag and take me to to where I needed to be in Delhi you know every, everybody's hustling there on the drive to the the guest house that I'd booked I, I was going to kind of wing my way around India I was there for nine months but the first few nights I'd booked what I thought was like a nice guest kind of hotel when we arrived there it was on a dirt track and the the sewers were open the smells were really intense and the taxi driver's like madame we have arrived I got into my room, closed all the curtains and I thought I need to sleep right now like I can't handle what is going on right now like I'm in total shock and I'm by myself. I woke up after a few hours and I remember my head just like opening the curtains like peering out like I'm a little kid looking down to the streets and seeing the incense burning and food carts That was like my my first I decided to go out and uh, I think I definitely looked like a rookie. you try to give some money and help and and buy food for people but still that's not enough to help you know the whole country there and and the whole country's problems and that's that's a very hard thing to accept when you're there it took me about six weeks to acclimate in the f- the fifth or sixth week i had my rucksack stolen with everything in it you know i'm saying everything i had like this tiny little day bag that did have my passport in and did have you know like some of my um, my bank cards and stuff so that important stuff that i still needed i had with me but my clothes i have asthma my inhalers and my professional camera like all everything got stolen and that train journey was from delhi to varanasi and varanasi is like a very holy um it's the oldest city in india and it's right on the ganges it's like towards the end of the ganges but it's where all the steps are going into the gats and where the burning gats are as well so so i was going to have that experience and i fell asleep and went past i think it was look now which was a real a, another big city the next big city on on the stop to varanasi and i must have fallen asleep for like an hour two hours and when i woke up my whole bag had gone you know obviously the the first feeling is panic and like Oh my god, what am I going to do? Like I'm I'm in this foreign country like my all of my belongings have gone and I just sat there. Everyone had gone on the whole train like there was hardly anyone left. And it's a sleeper train cuz it's a 12-hour journey. So I was asleep on my particular bed and my bag was underneath. So I sat there and I thought, you know what? They probably needed that more than I did. I felt like in England if my bag had been stolen or something the way they've handled it, it'd have been such a big deal but in india you see the poverty around you there's you remain humble that there's something that happens there that you know makes you re- reflect differently about life and what important things are and i thought kid these these are just material things like it sucks that your bag stolen but that's what they needed more than you did and i had that mindset and really remained calm i felt that that was like my first really big test in india and i remember walking down the train and i found a couple from israel still on the train they were still going to varanasi and i said can i sit with you i've had my bag stolen and i don't really want to be by myself for like the rest of the journey which i think was 
was like eight more hours. And they were like, of course. So they, they sat with me and, and kept me company. And the train pulled in really late at night into Varanasi. And I remember walking off that train platform with just this tiny little bag. And I'm in this foreign country all by myself. I actually just felt really free. Maybe it was a feeling of being a little scared too, but the overall feeling was like just this freedom of just me being by myself and out on the road traveling. And I felt like the baggage that I had been previously carrying was kind of just weighing me down, you know? That was probably like a metaphor for all the things that I felt that I needed. I just never forget that feeling of freedom, having that experience of not really having any belongings, like just the clothes that I was wearing in India. And, and that, that was a big learning experience for me too. I, I never forget that. I feel like I really blossomed from being a girl into a woman for sure and the, the spiritual growth that I had in that country has definitely stayed with me. Before I even went to India, that was that was not even a word that I would even talk about. What is spirituality? And after I left there, it was like an everyday conversation there about your energy and what you put out to the world and the cause and effects of karma and your actions on the world. I definitely think that my spirit and who I am grew and blossomed and I think that is still with me from that time in India. All of our experiences are unique to our personal filters. Hand in hand, we walk, leaving ripples of our expression. It's the place where we find our meaning that allows for interconnectedness, because true expression are undeniably resounding. There's a famous quote by Paolo Coelho that goes, when you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you achieve it. It takes wins, losses, support, timing, and then just a little bit of courage. Here's Ben Cena with his story. The first song I ever wrote was about two weeks after I started playing guitar and I had learned a couple of new chords and I was sitting in the living room and my mom came in and she was going to bed and she was saying goodnight and I just like strummed this chord and I started to sing this song and I just made it up on the spot and it was called Goodnight Mother. And a really simple, silly thing just kind of stuck with me. Good night, mother, sleep tight, mother, don't let the bed and bugs bite, mother, good night. Now is it. getting ready for fifth grade I remember you got to pick if you wanted to do band or choir and I chose choir because all the cute girls were in choir we had a concert that we were doing and the teacher was holding auditions for solos after class I didn't want to go because I didn't I wasn't really interested in it before class ended she read a list and she said if you're on this list then I want you to come even if you're weren't gonna do it I'm just suggesting that you come because I think you could do well 
my name was on the list, so I decided to go to the auditions. I ended up getting both of the solos, which was, you know, basically like kind of like a clean sweep. That's kind of what brought me into at least, you know, being interested in music, knowing that I was good enough to kind of be in there with everybody else. My parents got divorced for a brief time when I was in eighth grade for like a year. And during that time, my mom bought me a guitar. The whole reasoning behind it was that my youth minister at the time at church had asked me if I would start playing to kind of take over the praise band after the guy. I think he was a senior in high school, so he was gonna leave. So he wanted someone to replace him. So that's kind of how I initially got into music. And I remember I went my first year at A&M. I met these two guys and I had gone up over the winter after my first semester and recorded these three little songs at a studio with this guy and he kind of helped me produce the music. This is kind of really where I decided, I think that music was so important to me that I wanted to explore it further and, and see you know if it could be something that I could spend my life doing. I remember just getting like a great response from everybody that I knew in high school and I remember hearing from someone and they said, did you write that song about me? And I said, no, you know, I, I didn't. And they said, well, every time I hear that song, it just makes, it feels like it's about me. And that's kind of when I realized, I think like in that precise moment that that's why I love music so much. And that's why I always thought it was so powerful. I'd never really been able to put words to it. Knowing that, you know, you hear a song, you're in a certain place in your life and you hear some words that are comforting or just kind of remind you that you're not alone in your situation and how powerful that is to other people. I feel like music is always more powerful as something that will lift you up as opposed to kind of, you know, reminding you like things are dark. I decided to leave A&M to go to UNT and pursue music. I got into the music school there. Just started to learn all about how to compose music and theory and writing and being around a lot of great musicians. It's a really top flight school. And after that, I, I still didn't really even know that I could do music as a career. And I started grad school for counseling. Maybe like after a semester, I signed a, a deal with a with an indie label in San Antonio uh, with a producer. I had started coming back and forth to do work in San Antonio and it, it wasn't going fast enough. That's when I decided I'm going to quit grad school and move to Austin and just jump into it and see if I can make music work. I don't know like what specific day it was, you know, when I woke up and decided, but I just remember, I just remember thinking, I don't want to be an old man and look back at my life and just say, I, I never made that decision to try that because I was too scared or too afraid. I honestly just didn't want to live with that regret. I just remember we got into town and we knew one of the bartenders at Chupacabra on 6th Street and he knew that we were musicians, me and uh, my drummer. And he said, why don't y'all come play uh, Sunday night? And this was like maybe a week or two after we had moved to Austin. And so we went and played our first gig on 6th Street uh, Sunday night from 10 to two in the morning for 80 bucks. Somebody else saw us play down there and they were kind of connected with one of the other bars. And we just started getting gigs and I was I was lining up interviews for these teaching jobs and I remember we had played like a week or two. I came home really late one night and I had my interview the next day and I, I was just like, I made enough, like I can pay my rent. I'll just skip that interview and just see how this is gonna go. And honestly, it all just kind of happened naturally. There wasn't too much fear or even need for me to be brave or overly excited. It's not really about making money or being famous. It's just kind of about finding a, a way to help people and be involved in other people's lives. You feel that like synergy and that energy that comes from other people around you and being involved with what you do. I 
like sometimes stuff just falls into place and then there's just these moments in between where you're just kind of waiting in those moments in between it's like really important to be working and growing and getting better and better at what you do so that when you have those like moments where stuff starts to happen you're really ready to kind of jump in and, and be effective at what you do One of my favorite things to do is to walk through the market with my headphones on, listening to my new favorite playlist. It seems almost dismissive, but really listening to music is an intensely active process involving a stream of inferences, hypotheses, expectations, anticipation, and it happens mostly on a subconscious level. We carry our soundtrack with us wherever we go and the world around us is overlaid with our music. Our whole life becomes a movie and we can alter the soundtrack. Every melody declares to us that the past can be there without being remembered, the future without being foreknown. There's a tendency in philosophy to separate the mind, the intellectual operations from passions and emotions. The neuroscience of music in particular has concentrated almost exclusively on the neural mechanisms by which we perceive pitch, tonal intervals, melody, rhythm. But music calls to both parts of our nature, it is in its essence emotional, just as it is intellectual. If you're a sound engineer who's also a drummer, you get to truly experience the best of both worlds. Here's Lynn Gathright with his story. When I'm mixing, part of my my style of mixing is it you just it's like a it's like a, a, a picture, number one, you're painting a picture. As a sound engineer, one of my main things that I do whenever I'm uh, mixing for a band on stage or, or even recording is vocals. Vocals are the the one thing that everybody wants to hear whenever you go see a band. Is you got to have the vocals. When you hear yourself in your wedge or your monitor that way, and you can hear the low end that, that you're uh, singing, gosh, it makes all, it gives you confidence when you sing. It gives you to where whoever wrote the song, if it's that person that wrote it that's singing or somebody else, they're going, yeah, that's what it's supposed to sound like. When they were sitting there with their guitar and they were sitting there in the room, they can feel the resonance in their voice. And so that's why I always keep vocals way out front. I'm trying to distinguish frequencies that are coming off the stage to me and then make those frequencies sound good around all the other ambient noise that's happening in the room. When I left uh, Texas and moved to Tennessee, I knew I could do something in Nashville. I knew that I could get work. But when I got there and then I worked my way into the uh, record labels and to the artists and to the scene, basically, I was always an, a sound engineer, but I'm a musician as well. Not one time in 12 years did I get to play drums while I was in Nashville. Not one time. And I was just like going, Golly, I'm a drummer, you know? But I want to I wanna play because I see these guys, these artists that are on stage, and they get to do what they do. And then when they take it for granted, I'm going, no, 
don't, don't ever take that for granted because you're getting a chance to do it. You're on big stages with thousands of people and stuff like that. And I'm out front and I'm mixing it, but I know what it's like to be on the other side. I know what it's like to be on a stage and be looked at and be appreciated for your musical talent. I played on 10 cans and I had my mom's sewing can and that's what I've used as my drum. I knew I had an ability to play drums and that side of me that I didn't get to do, like I said, for 12 years, I thought I had lost. I was in Kentucky, I was with an artist. She had one hit and I was a road manager. I'd go to the record label, they'd give me uh, all the money that I'd have to pay the band members for their per diem and all that kind of stuff. But we went to a job in Kentucky and we were doing, the next day we were doing a show in uh, Boston with uh, Kenny Chesney. But I was there in this one huge stadium and I'd, I got to do sound and, and it was like, 20,000 people and I was I did our set and then Brad Paisley was the headliner we were the opener and he was the headliner so I walked out while Paisley was getting ready to go and I walked out to the middle of the baseball field it was all nobody was out there it was all dark and all the people were in the stands I was just standing there just going wow I get to do this <laughs> wow and there, there's Joe Galani from RCA Music and all these big wigs were around and I got to meet them and this was just an, an artist that was a pickup gig that I just, they'd say, well, can you go out for this weekend with this artist? I go, yeah, but, but then I got to do that. I called my wife up, I was crying. I was standing out in the middle of the field and I was crying. I was going, I cannot believe I'm getting to do this. Those are the little uh, things that, the little gifts that you get during your life that you just like, wow, thank you. When I get up every morning now and, and being able to, to go to some practices and actually be able to do that, as well as being able to do sound engineering, I'm just blessed. I have the best of both worlds at this point. As soon as I get to play out live again, it'll be even better than that. Immanuel Kant said, Now I say the beautiful is the symbol of the morally good, and that is only in this respect that it gives pleasure. The mind is made conscious of a certain ennoblement and elevation above the mere sensibility to pleasure. So according to Kant, the reason we find a given work of art beautiful is because we sense that some innate, benevolent, moral essence is tucked in there, elevating us. And we like that. In a homogenized world where we're encouraged to say the right thing, hold the same beliefs, jargon, views, remember to just listen to your deepest voice. Entrenched in the sound of others, it's hard to hear your own truth. There are opinions to be had, music to be made, sounds to produce. So please go out there and do it, because, you know, we'll all be dead soon anyway. You've just heard Kate Priestley, Ben Cena, and Lynn Gathright. Special thanks to Lauren Bukeri, David Taylor, Norton Armour, Drew Davis, and the Van Zandt Hotel in Austin, Texas. The music you heard in this episode was performed by Kate Priestley, KP and the Boom Boom, Ben Cena, and Drew Davis. If you're in Austin, Texas for South by Southwest, see them live at Geraldine's during their residency in the month of March. Drew Davis, Monday night, Kate Priestley on Tuesday, and Ben Cena on Wednesday night. We highly recommend. If you'd like to learn more about the music used in this episode, visit our website at www.ripplepuddle.com. Most of the research material was sourced from the World Wide Web, as well as David Byrne's book, How Music Works, Incognito by David Eagleman, and Musicophilia by Oliver Sacks. Ripple Puddle is produced by Carla Taylor with co-production by Marielle Quaid. Theme music by Stephanie Hafer. 
If you'd like to pitch a story, email us at ripplepuddle at gmail.com or leave a message on our tip line, 512-489-6786. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode coming out in just a few weeks.